Hey, welcome to Talking Direction, the Drumlinks podcast discussing the art and skill of directing and the path these artists are taking to navigate us towards a better, more imaginative, more equitable field for our audiences. I am Nylan, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Artistic Director, Gabriel Stelian shanks Hey, Gabriel. Thanks, Nylan. It is so good to be back. And hello, everyone. We're bringing you new episodes of Talking Direction bi-weekly as the American theater continues its return to live performance. So make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the American theater, historically, we often divide plays and musicals into new or classic. That is, a, a piece making its first premiere or a work that, well, isn't. It's been done before, but it is being reimagined or recontextualized. But therein lies the rub, as a famous playwright once said. The classic in theater has often been narrowly defined. It has been code for antiquity or Eurocentrism or whiteness or dead guys. And we do usually mean guys when we say it. Sometimes it's even more constricted, and this constricted atmosphere around classics has made artists who work in revisiting them especially adept at maneuvering. For years, we've used classics to educate our artists, train generations of practitioners, and build audiences that have an interest in the familiar being made strange. Brave artists of many races, orientations, genders, and nationalities have used classics to point out this very thing, the problematic core of works of art passing through times and culture shifts. Musicals of the Golden Age have been interrogated. Plays of the last century encounter the privileges of the elite class of those times. And the Greeks, well, they get employed to counter a myriad of modern issues. One of the most adept directors at navigating the waters of revisiting plays and musicals is our guest today, the extraordinary John Doyle. Many of us in America first encountered him when his acclaimed revival of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, transferred to Broadway and won him the Tony Award for Best Direction of a Musical. But he's followed that with staggering reimaginations of Company, The Colored Purple, and in his many productions at Classic Stage Company, where he has been the artistic director for many years and where he recently announced he is stepping down. Now, he's also directed new works, the beautiful musical A Catered Affair, Sondheim's Roadshow, and the eerie musical adaptation of The Visit, among many others. John served as an arts leader across four regional theaters in the United Kingdom before coming to Classic Stage Company as their artistic director in 2016. And now, as he enters his last season in the position, John will be opening his latest revival of Stephen Sondheim's work, the musical Assassins, this November. Please welcome John Doyle to Talking Direction. Hi, John. Hi. Good to meet you. It's good to talk to you. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> My pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, so, John, uh, we're, we're so happy for you to be here. And um, recently, I read um, in the articles about your stepping down from the artistic mm -hmm. director position at Class of Stage Company that you asked openly the question at the center of that company like what does it mean for a piece of theater to be a classic 
today. Mm -hmm. And you've programmed stories by living artists of color on the CSE stage um, this year to explore stories um, in a new way. And, And I wonder, what is the answer for you to your own question? What does it mean for a piece of theater to be a classic today? Okay. Well, I mean, you were you were right when you said earlier on about you know, it has been the uh, the purview of long since dead white men for for far too long, really European men. I have to watch what I say because I'm a long since living white European man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what right do I have to uh, to say anything? Um, you know, I do think classics, uh, of course. You know, they're about um, what has endured. They explore all that is complex about human nature. They've lasted, many of them, for a reason. Um, You know, take most of Shakespeare's canon. Whatever we feel about doing Shakespeare right now, uh, you know, he has said some of the most extraordinary things that have ever been said about mankind. So let's not lose sight of that. Um, But but I think think also classicism or, or looking at something which is classic can be about looking at that which is classic about each of us, you know, about our humanity, uh, about what we what we all try to say to the world, um, and and I think I think there's something powerful in exploring maybe other classical genres through theatre. Uh, for example, um, we did a piece here called Fire and Air, which Terence McNally wrote, which was about Diaghilev. Um, now, there's a, a modern Amer- American, at that point, living playwright um, who was looking at another culture, uh, in, or at least a, another art form, um, but exploring the that all that was classical about that and indeed all that was challenging classicism about that. Mm-hmm. I've been struck and uh, concerned about the fact that when I came to CSC, I was uh, struck by how little American work had been done in the company. Um, that's not to say that there wasn't much great work being done, but, uh, you know, we did a Tennessee Williams in my second season, um, and I think it was the first Tennessee Williams ever done at the theatre. Uh, that tells you something about America's own almost lack of confidence in its own classics, in its own stories. Uh, you mentioned in in, um, in your very kind introduction, uh, I'm always slightly spooked by those introductions because I always think who are they talking about really (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know you mentioned the color purple and I would say well there's a classic story I mean if that isn't an American classic I don't know what is and I feel that we're at a point where uh, and this is one of the many the myriad of reasons why I've uh, decided to step down I've loved being at CSC but it's it feels very much like it's somebody else's turn. And I feel that the work that needs to be done shouldn't be done by a European man and, um, and, and should be, and should be exploring stories from the American, through the American lens. Um, some classics, you know, some old stories, if we look at them that way, come in and out of fashion would I ever want to, or did I ever want to direct The Taming of the Shrew? No, not really. I don't like what it says. So I wouldn't do that play. Um, and I think some plays have their moment. Some cl- some true classics will go away and come back again in relation to where society sits. But at, at heart, 
it's the most wonderful form of asking the audience to look at its own nature. Um, most of the classics deal with big subjects, and uh, and I think that's powerful. I think you're also talking about uh, when when you talk about this um, interrogative moment. At CSC, you are in the role of programming, mm-hmm. of, of choosing what happens on the stage. And so I'd like to ask you two questions. One, about how you are have chosen works, especially in this moment, and another about your work as a director. So the, so the first question, just for our listeners who may not know Classic Stage's upcoming season, you are presenting... Assassins, as we Correct. mentioned, yeah. uh, Black Odyssey by Marcus Gardley, Correct. Snow in Midsummer, which is being directed by Drama League alum director Zai Ali Khan, yeah. Hi, Zai, and The Musical A Man of No Importance. Mm-hmm. So in this season, you have programmed two living writers of color, a, a black man and a Chinese woman. And, and by doing so, I think you're intimating that these works are classics and should be considered as such. So... How has the journey been to program this season? Well, you know, those plays, um, the, the two plays of the season, take the musicals out of it for a moment, uh, although we should talk about that too, because if if anything is classic in the American theatre tradition, it's the making of musical theatre. So, um, uh, uh, but let's just take the two plays. I, I felt... I. I felt we had done a lot of work through my years at CSC um, in terms of what people saw when they came into the theatre. Our, our casts have been increasingly diverse. Um, I think some of the points of view of storytelling uh, have have become more, um, again, more diverse. We've had directors of colour working in the organisation that's influenced the storytelling. Um, uh, but I I felt that. After the pandemic, you know, I've said throughout my theatre career, if only we could all stop and uh, and have a little pause and start again in a few months, really thinking about what we're trying to do. Well, careful what you wish for, John Doyle, because I never intended that it would be 18 months and I never intended that it would cause so much hurt to the world. Um, but... Uh, it has been, in in one sense, um, indirectly. I mean this very. Uh, I mean this tastefully. It's, it has been a gift to stop and say, okay, what do we want CSC to be as it moves forward? Um, and uh, the two plays, for example, are they're much older stories than those of William Shakespeare. Um, they go obviously one is a you know the Odyssey is more than two as 2000 years old and the other story is, is from a, a based upon a very old chinese story of from the i think 13th century um so i felt that looking at adaptations of those old stories through an, a, a, a modern american lens was a was a powerful thing to try to do i also wanted to give an indication um before i left and it's not my job to prescribe what any successor might do in the future. But I just wanted to open a door. Let's put it that way. I wanted to open a door to say, okay, maybe maybe we can look at different methodology, different methods to get to the classics. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to abandon the very old story. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, we should be, you know, let's talk about Hades Town. you know, like we should be really kind of looking to the old story 
but uh, but I I um I felt that I should program pieces that that were um that, that were were as I said looking at it through a new lens and almost more importantly uh, that were not pieces that I myself would could or should direct okay um you know when, when i don't think he'd mind me saying it because he's a friend of mine but when i asked marcus gardley about uh, csc doing black odyssey and he said oh john will you direct it because we're we, we know each other i said marcus that's the exact antithesis of why i think we shouldn't be doing it because i can't i can never help my lens you know it is my european lens is who i am so i can't help that um but i think it's really if if we are going to have listened uh, if we're going to have learned um from where we've been uh post george floyd uh what's happening in the american theater um i i feel that this is this season tries to be an indication. Now, um, let's just take a moment, though, to talk about the two musicals, um, because Assassins, we were already in rehearsal for. Um, when we paused, we were two weeks into rehearsal. We're going to come back with exactly the same cast, start all over again. And now we will be looking at that piece um, through, through a lens that is... Um, post January the 6th, let's put it that way, right? So you can only look at if I think the job of the artist is to look at is to look at work through the lens of now. I mean, let's never lo- lose the now. I'm not interested and never have been interested in doing, you know, um, uh, recreations. I mean, you know, copies. Uh, you'll know from my musical theater uh, revival work that I've done, they've never been copies of the original, nor should they be. Uh, to me, the, the notion of reviving is about breathing new life. And um, and so uh, now we will go back into rehearsal for Assassins, different people, the same people, but very different people. Um, and it will be very interesting to see what happens to the production in relation to the influences of where we are today. And then... The uh, a piece like a man of no importance, which is a beautiful score and a beautiful story, but it's also my last show, and I, I wanted to go out. Look, I'll be honest. I wanted to go out and do something I really wanted to do because often, as an artistic director, you know, you you program things that aren't necessarily your own taste, but uh, you feel that they need to be seen. That's an entirely different thing. Right. Um, but I wanted to. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the great composers of the American musical theater. I'd never worked with Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty, and I wanted to do that. And I, and I felt that there is something at the heart of that story that is about all that is good about the theater, all that is hopeful about the theater, all the change that theater can participate in, and how theater can make community better and more loving and uh, and um, more caring um, that I, as a Celtic man myself, um, like the man in the story, and I as, you know, somebody who doesn't see myself as being particularly important, um, I, I, I wanted to, um, it's a piece I wanted, it's a story I wanted to tell before I left. For over a century, the Drama League has been serving artists and audiences in the American theater with fierce dedication. As the landscape has evolved, we are too to meet our community in this important moment. 
our programs, ranging from internationally renowned directing intensive workshops to fellowships and residencies to a globally recognized award celebration, are constantly adapting to meet the needs of creators and consumers of art and culture. Stay up to date by following us on all social media platforms and visiting dramaleague.org. Thank you for that. Uh, that is, it's, it's a, I kept jotting down things you were saying as you were talking, um, because there's a, there's a theme that maybe as I pivot to sort of the second half of my question around your work as a director, um, feels informed by some of those things. You, you, the opening of a door as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a way to enter the conversation around programming stages or mm-hmm. the notion of reviving, breathing new life. And, and I'm curious because that seems to be the way that I have been in your audiences um, over many years that I have, I've been lucky enough to see your work um, almost all of your work in the United States and, and some of your work in the UK. And mm-hmm. I've always been dazzled by um, the the scope and breadth and variety in your imagination, especially as it comes up against works that I had known from previous productions. I um, I, I remember sitting in the audience of your revival of um, Brecht's The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui mm-hmm. um, with, with Raul Esparza, mm-hmm. and not only thinking about how that production felt different from other productions I had seen of that work, but also just sort of dazzled. I was, These are the two men who re- reimagined company for me a decade beforehand. <laughs> and so even your partnership felt revivified and new and different, um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with two works that are so stunning and so, but so different and so rich. And um, I, I remember the head turn when I came to see Carmen Jones a few years ago at mm-hmm. CSC and, and how fiercely romantic and, and, and um, um, vibrant it felt. Uh, and I, while I was watching it, I sat back to and thought about the really elegant w- revival of Pacific Overtures you had done. And I think those two things were just a year apart for me. And I remember living while watching Carmen Jones and thinking about Pacific Overtures and just dazzled by the difference in the way you come to work. And so as a as both a fan and as a director <laughs> and as someone who, uh, you know, we're on a podcast that is listened to by a lot of emerging directors because sure. that is the work of the Drama League. Sure. I'm curious how you approach text and material and, and your process when you begin to look at something. How do you approach the notion of reviving? You know, well, thank you for all those kind words. It's very kind of you. Uh, and and I mean that sincerely. It, it, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who um, seeks uh, approval through my work. <laughs> so thank God. So, um, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, it's nice if somebody enjoys it. It's, it. it's I even don't mind, to be frank with you, if somebody hates it. And I've got plenty of people who hate it too. But... Uh, it's the it's the middle that I'm not so comfortable with. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, okay, I let's start with the fact that I do very very little, almost no direct research. Um, now, do I? Let's take let's take a piece like Sweeney Todd or 
not so much company, but certainly sweetheart. You know, you, I spend a lot of time getting to know the piece before I start rehearsal. I tend now to design quite a bit of my own work in terms of set design. I, I designed um, Sweeney. I designed the color purple. Uh, um, I didn't. I didn't design the set of uh, of Carmen Jones, uh, but I did design the set of Pacific Overtures. So, in in the process, in the design process, particularly when I'm collaborating with myself, I'm not sure it's a good idea. But particularly when I do that, that gives me time to really contemplate how I feel about the piece visually, uh, and opens up a, a world for me in my visual imagination, which is where most of my existence is really I suppose you know I come from the highlands of Scotland I was surrounded by beauty as a child uh, uh, and so in terms of what was around me in mountains and water and so that's where I naturally lie um, I it, it's well documented though never actually agreed to by me that I'm some kind of minimalist I don't really think that's true I am I would pretentiously call an, an, call an essentialist. You know, I'm only interested in putting things onto a platform that are essential to the story. I'm only, I'm really fundamentally interested in the audience's imagination. So the buckets of blood in Sweeney Todd pouring from bucket to bucket was my way of tapping in on the audience's imagination of what, of how it is when blood pours from a, a body, um, which is what the, you know, the story is about. One of the things it's about, it's about love and all sorts of other complications. Um, but I don't do a lot of, you know, I, I, I don't go back and watch what somebody originally did with it. If I've, I may have seen the original, but I don't do that. I don't, um, I don't read what critics said about it or any of that kind of work. I, I build up a catalog of questions in my head about the piece what does it do to me? What do I feel about it? How do I see it? Um, what, what's it telling me? Um, I, I, I get most excited by the unanswered questions uh, that then that lie in my head, although they are the most scary. And then I go into the rehearsal room with those questions, um, but making sure that I don't already have the answer. I would I think it's bad practice to ask a question to which you already know the answer. And my mm. work with actors, who, which I love, is rooted in, so let's solve these challenges and these let, together, let's answer these questions together. I don't, I don't go into the rehearsal room having made any staging decisions of any description. Um, I, do, I, I also teach theatre at Princeton, and I say to my students all the time, but don't do what I do, right? You know, you're not <laughs> 300 shows later I can choose to work like this and uh, and live in the fear of working like that I don't recommend that to somebody who's just beginning um, but uh, but I don't you know pre-block I don't like that word anyway it's a very the word blocking always suggests stopping to me uh, uh, barriers um, so I don't I don't work in that way at all but I might have a few key images in my head most of the sets that I design for myself, and really, if I'm honest, with the designers I work with, most of the sets are platforms to storytell upon. They're not, um, most of them are, are not rooted in technology. I mean, I think you mentioned a catered affair. It did have a little bit more technology, actually. Things did float on and off stage. But really, I could have done a, a catered affair with 
a table, four chairs, and some lines of laundry. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I could have done mm-hmm. that. And I think if I was doing that piece again now, that's probably how I do it. Um, but but I, I, I truly go in, I, I mean, I, I joke, but I don't even like knowing when the opening night is. I don't. I don't like having a date in my head for anything so that so that I can go in and live completely in the moment of telling the story. Um, that's an awfully long answer to your question. I hope it gives <laughs> some sense of it. Um, but uh, and, and in some ways it sounds lazy. It's not. It's, it's actually much more rigorous than that. But I but I uh, but it's not a rigor that is rooted in. Ah, now I know how I'm going to do it. If I right. knew how I was going to do it. I wouldn't go into the rehearsal room. I genuinely wouldn't. Right. Thinking of your your point about recreation, reinvention, you know, I mean, I was very fortunate with Sweeney Todd in that a lot of very nice people gave me very nice prizes, and that's lovely. Um, but the, obviously, it was a, one of the two, the two greatest prizes, I think, were a two-line note on opening night from Mr. Sondheim saying, thank you for revivifying my musical. I love that word revivifying it has mm. much more it has much more c- content that word than simply reviving do you know and also and that is playing with words of course but it gives more sense of life and then also when it was in london i received a a note from uh, hal the late hal prince who i didn't know uh it was at the stage door and it said mr doyle um we haven't met but thank you for not doing a copy of my original production of Sweeney Todd. And actually, of all the things that happened with Sweeney Todd, that was the best, if we want to use that rather, rather pathetic word. But it, for me, it was the most meaningful um, that this genius of a man who had, you know, visualized that extraordinary iconic imagery that was Sweeney Todd was not offended by another artist coming along and seeing the musical from a very different point of view in fact was possibly relieved by that Mm. Uh, i too am sitting here (laughs) writing notes by the way (laughs) um of some lovely things you're saying um i'm one uh uh i'm having flashbacks of my experience when i saw um garmin jones um Mm. and and uh especially what you're saying about the limit of technology inside mm-hmm. of the, the the spaces you're building and mm-hmm. i think that i think i'm adding that a part of my own definition of a classic that it can have a conversation with space and and the present without technology i think that's um, exactly on... right i mean after all it always did uh, you know mm-hmm. you think of the greeks um you think of william shakespeare you know they were performed in daylight so that's immediately telling you that uh that technology was not part of the ball game yeah they always did uh and i think you know, I think what's ter- for me is very important about the classics moving forward is that whatever we do, whatever lens we see it through, whatever viewpoint we take, let's not lose a love of words in that. You know, I mean, what's wonderful about so many classic texts is that they, the the depth of the of the word is is so extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, you take it in a play like. Twelfth Night, when um, I think it's Olivia that says to Viola, you know, love sought is good, but given unsought is better. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't come any better than that. 
So let's not lose sight of that, I think, um, in, in how we define classic. I don't think that that means that it all has to be precious or special or any of those things. Interesting, too, with, with Carmen Jones, because, you know, that was a wonderful company um, led by a wonderful, wonderful actress. And Nicanelli Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, start, startling. And But I had been warned off the piece by a lot of people, saying, don't do it. It's, uh, you know, it could be offensive. Um, it's racist. I mean, there was a lot of people warned me away from it but I was I went when we I still felt in my water um yes I I hear you I hear those things but at the root of it is a classic story that goes back to the 19th century that is about love and pain and and joy uh, and uh, a woman and at the root of all that, I, I felt there was still something worth looking at. And I liked the fact that it looked at things through an American point of view, admittedly, written by, um, in, in, with Oscar Hammerstein, who, let's never forget, you know, a, a genius of, of ideas for the theatre for his time in particular. Um, he, uh, you know, he was looking at it within the resources of what were available to him and the people who were available to him at the time. And uh, I was fascinated by the fact that none of the all, all the people who told me not to do it were they were not people of color, and no people of color told me not to do it. Um, and uh, I, you know, I contemplate that a lot uh, in terms of I, I wasn't trying to put myself in a position of. Um, being any kind of guru about the piece, but I, I, uh, there's something about the stature of the music that transcended the challenges of the piece, if that makes sense to you. I'm so glad that you did it. It's my grandmother's favorite musical and I had never seen it produced. There you go. Um, and it was, it was just, it was just astounding to see it. Uh, can can I Sorry, if no, go, no, go you, for it. You know, go for it. In terms of another class, you know, take something like the color purple. You know, I've been asked, understandably asked, of late, um, should I have done it? Right? Should this white European man of a certain age have done that piece? Uh, and um, uh, in fact, I, I, I said I wouldn't do it a number of times, and eventually was persuaded to do it, and I. In the end, I didn't regret it at all. And in fact, I think if I if I hadn't done the piece the way I revived it, with the particular lens through which I... The, the, the particular kind of theatre-making techniques that I used to tell it, it, it wouldn't have been seen by people all over America. Um, and so I'm not patting myself on the back for that. I'm just saying... Uh, the, this, we have to acknowledge that different storytellers are needed for different things at different times. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Um, no, 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 you know, it, it does. It, it's, very, it's complex, do you know? It's very complex. And, uh, I, you know, actually my biggest, my biggest fear of doing The Color Purple before it came to America, bear in mind The Color Purple was only supposed to happen at the Chocolate Factory in London and then never be seen again. Um, my biggest fear was 
I as a man doing it. That's what because I kept thinking, this should be directed by a woman. <clears throat> and then, you know, I went to the University of Georgia as a student in the 1970s. Uh, and I came to work with a company here, and I was very honest from day one and said, this, uh, this can never be my story. Um, all I can do is help. All I can do is enable, the, you know, the telling of this story, but... I, if that's the right word, but if I, you know, I can, I can make a platform where the telling of this story is safe, but uh, it can never be directly my story. But there are things in the story about poverty, religion, Georgia, um, that I understood uh, that have been part of my life story. So it was a meeting of all sorts of extraordinary things. Yeah, I want to lift up that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to when that story is told by a woman. I think it's yeah. uh, it's 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 it speaks. It's so rich and um, so rich. Uh, a, a gendered um, expression of love, um, and and how one walks through this earth as a woman. That I'm I'm really excited when a woman gets to um, yeah. put their techniques and hands on it. Exactly right. Being a creative professional means we're always learning. And with the pandemic coming to an end, there's never been a better time for us to up our game. The Essentials is the Drama League's acclaimed series of online and in-person workshops that feature cutting-edge techniques to help you be ready for the changing realities of the arts in America. Hosted by award-winning thought leaders and experts, The Essentials offers one-of-a-kind sessions in text analysis, camera techniques, auditioning, and much more. You can participate directly in the hands-on workshops, or simply observe via Zoom. Classes are filling up for 2021. So, learn more and sign up by visiting dramaleague.org slash essentials. That's dramaleague.org slash essentials. Something you brought up earlier that I just want to lift up and maybe talk a little bit more on. You you said, um, and it's because you have the outside eye. You... Um, um, not, not being from the U.S. and coming over, you said uh, something about America um, not investing in its own stories. Because um, I was kind of, I was, I was, I was, my ears perked up when you said that um, Classic Stage Company hadn't um, directed any American plays <laughs> when you came, and I and I went wow, and I just think of the epicenters where we get to do the classics um, mm-hmm. in the American theater and how little. Uh, even in their name, right? In, in the title of these theaters, there's so many, this Shakespeare theater, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so there, but, but there's, I can't, I don't know many American playwrights who are lifted in that way. And our need um, as American artists to, to really lift our own and, and, and say that these things are classics, say that these stories are, should be treasured. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? For a culture that on, on one, for a country, culture is the wrong word to use really there are many cultures within it but for a country that uh, on one hand is so um, celebrates its self-confidence <laughs> in one sense uh, and I love this country so I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm being derogatory I'm not uh, in the arts isn't always it, it is more in musical theatre but in theatre itself I hate the word legitimate theatre but you know plays um is not quite so confident perhaps 
I don't want to suggest that no American had ever written anything for a classic stage. You know, David Ives did a very successful series of, of French adaptations. Um, I'm sure if you went all the way back to the beginning, probably Chris Martin did some Arthur Miller or something. But my point is there was no regularity of that uh, of that um, of that kind of canon. And s- as far as I know, um, no looking at you know, the place of the Harlem Renaissance or the really, the, I don't think that work was ever really done. Um, and yeah, it, I can't be responsible for all that. And no one person should be responsible for all that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm excited by the fact that that's a movement of change. Thank God at last that is happening, you know, and I, 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 I would not be so um, arrogant or uh, um, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say that I uh, um, have the have the uh, the life wisdom for all of everything I'm talking about. But, you know, when I went to Georgia, University of Georgia in 1973, 1974, um, the world was a even there was a very different place. It's now not different enough, but it was a very different place. Um and yeah, one day if we ever meet in person, we'll talk about that. But it, <laughs> you know, it, no, I look forward to that. I do. Yeah, it, it was it was just very different, and it's interesting. You know, in my lifetime, I'm the first. I, I was the, I was one of of first two com- uh, director of two one of two companies who co-produced the first uh, black Shakespeare or, of you know or black company in in the UK. Um, uh, in 1990, the first time a Shakespeare had been done solely mm. by a company of black actors. 1990. I mean, please, you take my point. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's much to be done. There's work that has been done. Uh, and it's what I think is most important is that we keep addressing the work that needs to be done. Exactly. And I would love to use that sentence to talk about uh, what I would like to call the fun stuff, uh, by which I mean assassins and this moment that you are in right now. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, um, you know, you, as you said, you had begun rehearsals, you are about to restart those rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we will be very close to the beginning of performances when this podcast airs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I want to approach it two ways. One is to talk about um, and to pay you another compliment, um, because uh, Classic Stage had a beautiful video piece during the pandemic uh, called Tell the Story, which celebrated this piece and and helped audiences understand it in a deeper way, which was, yeah. um, and Nyland will tell you this is the truth, I the, the day after it premiered, I came and said, this is my favorite work of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and you spelled out the reasons that this work has to be seen anew. Yeah. In that moment, we also are are reckoning with what I think is one of the most important historical turning points in this country's ongoing story, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. And so in that context of the work is still needs to be done, the work still has to be told, how is it to approach this deeply American story in this particular moment? You know, I don't know yet. 
I mean, I think you might have to call me up and ask me in six weeks' time, and I would be able to give you the answer. Great. We'll um, be back with you after this commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know, but I, I do know that it would be irresponsible not to, within that rehearsal room at least, talk about and share about everything that has happened since we stopped. You know, when we were going to do Assassins last time, we had a different president to in the United States. Mm. Um, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I'm putting the play on as an advertisement for the assassination of presidents. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it was a different was a different time and place. We had not had, um, I mean, we'd had many lies, but we'd not had the big lie. Um, we had not had the. Um, the awfulness of January the 6th, but at the same time, the, let, you know, let's take a moment and say, if, if ever those people who were on those steps that day, if ever there was a cast of assassins, that's it, do you know? I mean, mm. people who believe they're not being heard, I'm trying to be sympathetic, but, you know, a- people who believe asking, they're not, yeah, know, they, asking I, to it be It felt heard. to me like a, a thousand people asking, where's my prize? Where's my prize? Exactly right. Yeah. And and so, um, you know, I was in conversation with John Weidman about this only the other day. I'm very lucky. You know, the people who wrote this piece are friends and colleagues of mine, and I'm able to talk about it with them, which what an extraordinary lucky thing that is, a gift in itself. And, you know, we were, talk- I, we were talking about when the play was first done, and I said, you know, do you think that the modern audience will know who all these people are? Um let a, forget the assassins for a moment. Will they even know who these presidents are? Uh, let's acknowledge that that's not going to be the case. So whilst we don't want to turn it into a history lesson, let's acknowledge its history and its rep- and the repetition um, that has happened. Uh, and also, you know, when it when they first did it, it was thirty years closer to the assassination of John F. Kennedy than, than today, yeah? Now, I'm old enough to remember, oh, I was back in the United Kingdom, but I'm old enough to remember exactly where I was when something just broke, you know, when when we heard the news that Kennedy had died. Um, but the number of people who uh, viscerally remember that moment is getting smaller, yeah. And but one thing that I imagine most of our audience will have in common is that they will remember the visceral feeling of, oh, my God, people are storming the Capitol. I mean, the very word storming, um, you know, they, they are hanging a noose. They are calling out to assassinate Nancy Pelosi. Um, whilst I don't want you for a moment to think that we're going to be, you know, running around wearing a bearskin hat or, you know, like trying to be those people. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not talking about anything literal here. Uh, it won't be, a, the, the production will not be a reenactment of January the 6th. But if we don't, if I don't somehow in the storytelling at least prick the connection between January the 6th and uh, and this piece and that repeated history, then perhaps I won't have done 
my job. Um, so, so, yeah, lot, lots of different ways in now. It, it's the longer, you know, normally as a director, you have like, you might have a couple of months to think about the piece you're going to do, which I did when I started Assassins last time. Well, I never thought I'd have 19 months to be thinking about the piece I was going to do in between, as you know, as you said, in the in the pause in rehearsal. I mean, I never thought that was the case. This is the longest time in my working life. I'm very lucky. It's the longest time in my working life where I've not been in a rehearsal room. So that's mm. very frightening. Uh, what's it going to be like to go? It must be the same for the company. What's it like to go back into that room again? <laughs> you know, it's uh, that, that, that's all tricky stuff. Uh, so there's a multitude of things in there. Where we are very fortunate, blessed, is that um, the entire company are doing it, who were doing it before. And way the greater percentage of the audience has held on to their tickets and are being rebooked. You know, there are so many really great, very moving things about it. I think the fact that we did that piece that you talked about, Tell the Story. I mean, whoever thought that we would get Hillary Clinton to talk about it? You know, amazing, really. Mm -hmm. um, that, and to hear those writers talking about the piece, but to try to connect, as I tried to visually do in that, between that empty theater waiting for a story to be told. I mean, that set is sitting down there waiting for actors to walk onto it. It has been waiting for more than a year and a half. That's, mm. that's very mm. moving. Um, it is very moving mm. and uh and i feel that it's an honor to to do it at this time um will we get it right i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but that's the one question that i never i don't know what right means really in terms of making a piece of theater i know what it means morally but uh in terms of you know is it is it the, is it the right is it the best way to do it i i, I don't i don't know I don't know. It's interesting you mentioned, I think you mentioned a catered affair at the beginning there, didn't you? And you wanted your did. introductions. You know, it's interesting as a director, those pieces, I've done five Broadway shows and two of them, a catered affair and the visit, um, were the shortest by far. And yet there are things about those pieces that I am more proud of than anything else. So it, how you assess work, um, and what, what is or is not successful uh, uh, as an artist is really about, did you get anywhere near what you thought you might be trying to say? Enjoying today's episode? We hope you'll join the community of artists and arts lovers behind it by becoming a member of the Drama League. For over 100 years, the Drama League has been supporting the entertainment industry and the incredible artist at the center of it. When you become a member, you'll receive unparalleled access to the entire theater scene, members-only events, insider news, and ticket discounts. And your membership directly makes it possible for the next generation of artists to learn, grow, and succeed. And they've never needed your help more than now. So to join us, please visit dramaleague.org membership. That's dramaleague.org membership. And from all of us, thanks for joining. Uh, and now is the moment when I admit that A Catered Affair is a musical I listen to with great regularity. I think it's a really. I do. I think it's I a love deeply this confession. <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a deeply underestimated piece. 
I felt um, that too. I felt that too. You know, I am. Um, you, you, it's very nice that you listen to it. I have never listened to any of the show recordings of any of the shows that I've done. Um, they're all still in the cellophane. But I, I, uh, I felt, I felt it was underestimated as well. I felt the visit was too. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a remarkable experience. You know, if if you are living, if you're working in a room, and it, I remember the day when I looked down the room and I thought, oh my god. That's John Kander sitting there. That's <laughs> Terence McNally. That's Graziella Danielle. And I'm sitting in the middle of this room. How did this happen? And there in front of me are, are you know, Anita and Nicholas Nickleby. Dear God. Right. I mean, <laughs> it was one of those sort of out-of-body moments, which, you know, to say to any, you know, you mentioned the young directors that listened to this podcast, you know, I remember going to see Nicholas Nickleby in London and whenever that was, and being one of the two or three things that absolutely changed my life as far as the theatre was concerned. And thinking, oh God, there's Roger Rees. He is like a god to me. Mm-hmm. And if only I could ever meet that man and he seemed so he looked so beautiful and he seemed so beautiful. And he and there he was in that room, just as scared as I was. And you know, that's a great thing, I think. That's a great level it's a great leveling thing, is my point. Um, I do think that the one th- great thing about the theatre, for all the complexities that we're talking about, about the lens, how it's seen, who sees it, who it's for, I do think, and I'm probably wrong to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, I do think that it's one of the things that makes us the same. It 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 deals with our same sadnesses and sorrows and joys i can't see it from your point of view you can't see it from my point of view but it touches on those basic human conditions that make us the same and uh that's its power really more than anything that's why i think it won't go away Mm, i agree with you it's not gonna go away no um and i'm not worried about it uh uh we know it's gonna come back we know it's gonna live again yeah, oh, yeah, I agree. I completely agree with you there. Oh yeah, it just has to live differently now. It would be it, we would be irresponsible if it didn't live differently, uh, because after all, just take the pandemic alone. We have gone through a worldwide experience um, that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Uh, we've you know we've gone through the closest thing to a world war uh, in terms of impact. And let alone all the all the other deeply important cultural uh, experiences and changes and challenges, um, and if we don't, if theatre doesn't come back differently under that context, I, it, I don't know who we are as human beings because that would be irresponsible. That doesn't mean that everything has to be sad. It doesn't mean that everything has to be about pain. Uh, it can mean that things are about joy. It can think, mean, like the color purple, that things are about resurrection. Um, uh, but it ha- theater has all those potential powers, I think. I agree. Um, you had mentioned um, an artist you saw before, and then you got the chance to work with them. I wonder if there's artists still um, out there that you are hoping to get the chance to collaborate with. And maybe this could be like a calling card that hopefully it hits their ears. <laughs> um, look, uh, I love working with the same people again and again, right? That's been part of, that's quite a British tradition that, you know, to constantly work with the same people. Um, I mentioned Marcus Gardley earlier on. He's, we're working on something else together and he's somebody that I really enjoy working with. 
So I hope there'll be more of that. I would love to think that I could get to tell another story with Cheetah Rivera because that's one of the mm. great spirits. Of, not Forget the American theatre. It's one of the great spirits of life. Um, uh, obviously, she's a personal friend, but I would, I would do anything for that. I would... I've never... I know her. I've never worked with Judy Dench, but boy, I'm happy that you cut my hand off to let me do it. That's fine. <laughs> so I would certainly do that. And uh, please, this one, she might be listening. Who knows? Please put me back in a room with Heather Headley, mm. oh, because mm, yes. I do think she's one of the she's one of the great talents of the American theatre, and I adored working with her. Uh, I adored working with Audra. I Paddy Lapone is another goddess, you know, Cerberus. So many people that I've already, you know, I've been blessed. So many people that I've worked with that I would love to work with again and maybe again and maybe again. And that's not meant to sound um, exclusive to anybody new coming into that. No, not for a moment. But I do think there is a power in art, in repetition of storytelling together. I think there's great mm-hmm. power in that. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's a power in telling the same story. I mean, you know, Picasso really painted the same painting again and again and again and again and again and again and again, just different ways, you know. My husband always says to me when he comes and sees my work, oh, yeah, same old moves, you know, same shapes, <laughs> in other words, right? You can always see, you will always see figures of eight because I was raised dancing in eight some real in Scotland. You'll always see fluidity because I was raised with water. Um, you will always see a, a slight sense of objectivity um, because I'm interested. Uh, I'm more interested in the relationship between the actor and the audience than I am almost between the actor and the actor. Uh, you know, I'm, in, I'm very, so there's a, a slightly, if you want to call it presentational uh, or, or, um, uh, distancing quality to it, uh, which some people I think criticize. I'm cool with the fact they criticize. It's a deliberate choice. I don't mind. I'm glad they got it. Um, you know, so I, I'm, uh, I'm coming at it from different points of view, and I'm now getting to the. I'm personally getting to the point of thinking, oh, maybe I ought to. Uh, this has always felt like an arrogance to me, but now that I'm leaving CSC, I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe it's time to write about it a little bit. Um, particularly the work that I did with that, that I do with actors who make their own music, you know, with actor musicians, as yeah. you saw in Sweeney Todd or in Company, or, and what that's done for the theatre in America, to be honest, um, and what that, what that can do as a theatre theater telling, storytelling technique. Nothing new in it. Brecht was doing it. Shakespeare was doing it. The Greeks were doing it. There's nothing new in it. But uh, those productions that I've just talked about that you saw, I'm sure they, they gear change the use of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel it's time to really, for me to analyze that, to look at that a bit more closely. I, I think I can speak for the entire American theater when I say, write it. <laughs> write, the, write the book, John. I got Please excited too. I was like, do that. Please do that. <laughs> Um, well, we're we're coming to the end of our time together, but we do have one question that yeah. we are trying to ask uh, everyone who yeah. comes to Talking Direction, and it is um, a question maybe related to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we are wondering what advice you might give, if you can think back in time to 
your earliest self when you when you were just starting out as a director, um, if there's one piece of advice you could offer to your younger self that you wish you had known then that you know now, what would that advice be? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, there's there two or three things, if you don't mind, if it may not be one, I mean, one is a piece of advice I give to a lot of people anyway, younger directors, students, etc., which is to be decent, you know, always be decent. Uh, it may not get you the first job, but it will get you invited back. So be decent. If you want to have longevity in this profession, uh, decency, I think, is deeply, deeply important. It's important in everything. Uh, anyway, um, in terms of my young self, talk to my young self, I think something about saying to myself, don't try to be somebody else. The story is in you. It's, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's about you, but it may be about your family, maybe about where you come from. I don't mean literally, um, but look to yourself. Don't, don't look to what other people tell you it should be. Um, yes, do, do the research if that's what you feel you need to do, but don't let that teach you what it is. Because actually, I think the real journey of an artist, if we take away from being a just, a, if we distinguish the difference between being a theatre director and being an artist, and I was in my 40s before I could call myself an artist, right? It took me a long time to become comfortable with that word. Um, I think, I think the essence, one of the essences of being an artist, as well as having a point of view on the world, right or wrong, is to accept that the story is in you and that you're good enough. Mm. And that last bit is really important. I say it to actors a lot. You're good enough. All mm. you have to do is show up, but you have to show up open, not necessarily ready, <laughs> but open um, to any possibility. That doesn't mean to say that you have to be open to be told what to do or open to being uh, dictated to, none of those things, but open to, yeah, to, to sit in your own openness about how the story might be told and how you might contribute to it. Uh, I think that's that's what I would say. Mm. That's, that's much appreciated. And I think uh, always be decent and stay open to possibility ranges well beyond well our work beyond. in the theater. Well beyond. It's a guide for living. <laughs> completely jo agree. I think Gabriel and me would rather do the same thing. We're just about to say thank you. <laughs> just a huge thank you. Um, You're terribly um, welcome. It's been a pleasure. John, yes, thank uh, you. It, it Your contributions to directing, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that I think you um, leave classic stage having deeply enhanced uh, that community, the New York community, and your work has really been um, uh, an object lesson in for all of us who direct in how to move through this space and time. So thank you for that. Thank you. And also just to say, bear in mind that although I'm, I will be leaving Classic Stage, I won't be leaving America. And uh, so if there's anybody listening who can offer me a job, I'd be only too happy to show up. <laughs> hey, I hear that hustle. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so, so, thank so you. much. Thanks, John. And thank bye -bye. you, listeners. We'll see you next time on Talking Direction. Thanks for listening to Talking Direction. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. 
You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Drama League. Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York, America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening. 